I uh, was preparing the sermon this week, and it's sort of a continuation of what I talked a little bit about last time, although I talked about judgment and all of those sorts of things, which may have unsettled some people. But this is about the days and the seasons. There are two readings that I want to talk about, because it's about being prepared, it's about being clear, and it's about understanding the way God works in the cosmos, I think. So we have a reading from 1 Thessalonians about Paul talking about the days and the seasons. You know, knowing the days and the seasons or not knowing. And then we have a parable in Matthew's gospel about the talents, the parable of the talents. And uh, it's about being uh, prudent and far-seeing and uh, that it may have something to do with the values of the kingdom of God. These are all preparatory lessons for the beginning of Advent, where that that focus will be what's the four weeks of Advent, particularly the first three weeks, because the fourth one begins to talk about the uh, incarnation and the coming of what we call Christmas. But it's there about, you know, hope and uh, about uh, enthusiasm and about uh, thinking about uh, repentance and a variety of subjects like that. So this is introductory stuff. This week and next week we'll celebrate uh, the moving into Advent with the Feast of Christ the King. And uh, we'll talk about God being a king and how we understand that in uh, the 21st century. So we read today from 1 Thessalonians, which is the oldest piece of literature in the New Testament. And it dates from maybe 48 to 50. And um, it is uh, about the themes that Paul, early on as he was writing his letters, at least the extant letters that we know of, was concerned about. And that is uh, the, the second coming. What does it mean? And Paul, all his life and all his ministry, believed that the second coming was going to be very soon within his own lifetime. But he was also aware of the fact that the second coming had not yet occurred and that there were people in the Thessalonian congregation who were worried and nervous about this and wondered when it was going to happen. So today he's telling them that it is not for us to know the times or the seasons. But it's also important for us to know something about what Paul meant when he thought about the second coming. Because most of the time we have, uh, because of uh, 2,000 years of Christian history, we believe that the second coming is really going to be Jesus coming and God conducting some species of of an ethnic cleansing. And then all of the people who survive that are going to be in the kingdom. So what was going on in Paul's mind when he was talking about that? Well, Paul was thinking about the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which had run the ancient Near East for, in a stable fashion for about... 50 years before Paul was writing this, maybe a little longer. And so the second coming or a second coming was something that was well known of in terms of the people's expectations. But what it had to do uh, was uh, the 
witnessing in history of the coming again of a Roman general into a town or village who had been very successful on his campaigns but did not live in Rome any longer, who had amassed a great fortune and probably had a private army, and who the Roman emperor was probably absolutely delighted that he had decided not to move back to Rome. Okay? So when the second coming occurs, it's going to be seen, Jesus would, would have thought this too, like, oh, you know, this glorious thing that's going to come, and it's going to produce uh, a reorientation and probably a great deal of turmoil. So Paul is thinking about the second coming in terms of that sort of uh, historical social idea of there going to be some form of disruption that occurs. Now think about this when we know about the uh, synoptic gospels, let's say, that are written between, say, 65 and 85 or 90. John's a bit later than that. And they have, at least some of those gospel writers, there's some debate about whether they all did. But they knew about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman army in 70. They came in there and raised the city. Every, most everybody in Jerusalem ran away. It was a ruin. The temple was ruined. And if you were a Jew, it was the end of the world. The, the, the type of Judaism that we, we see now which some call, although this is another disputed thing, rabbinic Judaism, is something that was created and had its, its beginnings before the destruction in the temple, but it was that species of Judaism that, that enabled Judaism as a religion to continue because there was no more sacrificing Judaism because the temple had been destroyed. So they began now to say, well, this is how, this is how we uh, think about this. So Paul is speaking to people in uh, the Thess Thessalonian congregation who are saying to themselves, you know, is this what we mean by the second coming and when is it going to happen? And he's saying, it's not for us to know the times and the seasons, but we need to be prepared. And we as Christian believers think that the new kingdom is going to embody uh, characteristics and a, a change in the world that is not like we're thinking of typically. So one of the things that's been part of the Christian message from some for a long time is that it was, it, at the end of the world is going to be something that's going to be, you know, not often too pleasant or only for a few who are going to get out the other end alive. And uh, there'll be all sorts of things that happened. I mentioned this last week. When the rapture comes, this car will be driverless. <laughs> that there's going to be something that's going to happen that, that for, for uh, uh, postmodern people in 2014, those kinds of images simply don't satisfy. You know, some people may believe them on faith or would do whatever they do. But that's, I don't think that's what Paul meant. And it certainly isn't what Jesus meant when he talked about the coming of the kingdom. So Paul is attempting now to talk about how we think about God doing things in God's time. 
Remember, I've spoken about this before. In the Greek New Testament, there are two words for time. Chronos, chronological time, you know, hours, days, all of that, and kairos, which means time. Right? And so most of the things happen in God's time. One of the elements of the five-fold mystical path that my teacher Urban Holmes always talked about as one of the ways to uh, understand uh, doing the spiritual life. Purgation, emptying, study, patience, discipline. And the hardest of all of these is patience. Because we want to have progress with our own spiritual journey faster than we have it. We all want to, uh, we're, we're all beset with uh, distractions and uh, attractions that keep us from being centered in God. We often don't want to do the work that we need to do in order to uh, strengthen our spiritual muscles, to have the interior self-discipline and self-regulation to allow that to happen. And all those things are part of how we live as we wait in God's time. So this is about the importance of doing it in that way. One of the other ways, by the way, is that it's not just personal and individual, but it's corporate. So we as the people of God in church, and we as the people of God as we seek to be to be the church, as we talked about at the convention, is out there. Not just in here. But in here is very important because it gives us the strength and the stability to be able to do these things out there. So Paul's driving it uh, that in this reading. Now we have the parable of the talents. A talent. I looked this up. A talent in today's currency is $660,000. So you give a servant or slave, they're properly translating this word now in the newer versions, uh, five talents, you've given him something in the neighborhood of three plus million dollars. To give somebody two talents, you've given him about a million three something. And to give the guy with the one talent, he's got $660,000. Now, this is going to be related in some sense to the second coming and to the values of the kingdom. So remember when I said last week and many times before, if you read a parable of Jesus in the New Testament, three questions always come up. What did Jesus mean when he spoke it? How did the early church who heard this parable and was engaged in the process of the creation of the written New Testament uh, interpret this parable and uh, commend it to other people? And what did Matthew mean when he uh, reproduced this parable? And how did it relate to his own community uh, where that, this gospel emerged? So when we think about it in terms of Jesus uh, and his meaning of the parable, we might say 
that he was condemning the religious leadership of his day for not, for not properly handling uh, the great riches of their grand tradition and seeing that it may now have a, a growing edge which is being focused uniquely in him. So the people that invested their talents and ex exercised some form of entrepreneurial leadership are people who have taken the tradition and have moved it in a direction uh, that is important in terms of the values of the kingdom. So be careful when I say that because you're going to say to yourself, well, what do you mean uh, we're all going to go, you know, become Wall Street investors here and do all this? I mean, you could make the case after what's happened in this country over the last seven or eight years that uh, the guy who buried his talent was like Bernard Baruch said, you know, I, I always sold too soon. <laughs> he was being safe. And these other two were risking for this purpose. So Jesus is speaking to the religious leadership who are very hidebound about how, we, how everything ought to be done and very hidebound about listening to other voices within uh, Judaism that uh, they didn't agree with. The group in Jerusalem, the Sadducees, were the ones who controlled the temple financially and uh, procedurally and every other way. And they were also fundamentalists with regard to the Torah because they didn't believe that any of the traditions that had grown up around the interpretation of the Torah that we call like Midrash, Mishnah, you know, the Talmud, all of those things, no, it's just the Torah itself that for them was authoritative. And so they were pretty narrow in their focus. Now, the community out of which this, uh, heard this parable and put a greater moral cast onto the parable because they believed that fiscal policy and prudent use of material things were important in preparing people for the values of the kingdom. So you can read into that not accumulating as much money as you can. You can look at it in the right handling of your substance and you can look uh, at it, interpreting it in terms of uh, how much do we give back to God. You can look at it in terms of interpreting uh, how being prepared is an important thing to do. So it is important for Christian people to look after their affairs. But their affairs include also spiritual matters, the way in which we understand um, that we're created in the image and likeness of God and we're obliged to reflect that back to others. So that's the primitive preaching of the early church about this parable, kerygma, the proclamation of the word. And finally, Matthew, as I've said now over and over again, is faced with the uh, difficulty of being a, a Jewish Christian in a synagogue that is 85% Gentile. And clearly, as a Jew, he's wondering about whether or not uh, we have not rightly handled the tradition. And how have we invested ourselves in uh, listening 
and paying attention because most of us have rejected the message of Jesus as, a Messiah, as the Messiah. And because of that, we're now in a situation where uh, people who have been rock-ribbed rock traditionalists have found themselves wanting in this sense. I always don't know what to do and to tell you about, you know, where they'll be in the darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I just don't know. I know what that image looks like because I've seen the artist paint it in the <laughs> Renaissance, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, not a happy idea. But what it means is that um, all of us know what the consequences of, of uh, lack of prudence produce. We don't need to catalog that in, in any kind of uh, blame way. We know what it is. So I would say that uh, both of these readings have something to do with being prepared and thinking about your life with some degree of intention and knowing that you do this always under the loving, watchful gaze uh, of a generous Savior. Amen.